0: Uh, We're in 1 Kings. Uh, We are back in 1 Kings after a little bit of a reprieve, uh, sort of unplanned. Uh, We preached out of Mark 5 a couple weeks ago, then we had baptism, and then my dad was here, and then I preached out of Isaiah 55 last week. But we're now, we're back finally, (laughs) uh, back into 1 Kings, seeing what God has to say for us in these incredible books. We've noted over the last several weeks as we've gone through this series... Uh, Just how, uh, despite how incredibly vast the history that is on display in these books, they have a lot to say for us. Yes, even in our day. Paul tells us that, by the way, in Romans 15. He says that these little stories, that these narratives are for our benefit. He says they're for our learning. As we know elsewhere from Scripture that all scripture is breathed out from God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction. They're they're profitable for us, and such is what we find even in yes these rather obscure stories. As you've perhaps seen, perhaps you've read ahead in First Kings and you've and maybe even Second Kings, and you've seen all these really perhaps To you, they seem like random little vignettes of Israelite history. They are actually, I think, meant for us for a single purpose. Meant for us to see just how desperate our need is for this king of kings. And I think that's pretty much, if we can boil scripture down to one really simple truth, is that man is incredibly insufficient and God is all-sufficient. And it takes a lot of time for man to learn that. It takes a lot of history for man to uh, finally accept that and if I don't even know if he ever has. <laughs> If you remember though, up to this point, we're in 1 Kings 14, we've spent some time recently with the sort of successors of Solomon's throne. Most notably Rehoboam and Jeroboam as the kingdom is disrupted and divided and wreckage comes onto God's people through these very wicked kings. And the primary figure we've been dealing with is Jeroboam. We're going to somewhat close out his story this morning in what will sort of be the capstone to one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history. It is this chapter of King Jeroboam. In fact, the verses that I read, the ones that perhaps might have stood out to you, are verses 9 and 10. When the prophet Ahijah is sort of giving the the final verdict, if you will, on Jeroboam's legacy. He says... You've done evil before all that were before thee. What a, what a record to have on your name. That you were the most evil king in Israel's history. And in fact as we'll see this is a declaration that proceeds forth for hundreds of years. Jeroboam's kingship, his reign was marked by this very serious decline into ungodliness. As we've noted, he was this one who was thought himself to be preeminent, both in religion and in politics. And he was making everything appear as if he was the head, the ruler, the king of all kings, when we know in fact he wasn't. And what's sad is that he... Much like Solomon was warned over and over again of how he could preserve his throne. If you remember, the guy who appears in this narrative, chapter 14 the prophet ahijah is the same one that appeared to him in chapter 11 who told him who prophesied of the very fact that of how all these things would come about that he would uh, take the 10 tribes and he would be the next king of israel because of this judgment that was going to happen for solomon and he was told there actually just go there really quick as we just get our bearings it's it's been a while so let's get our bearings Look at 1 Kings 11 verse 37. Ahijah is is prophesying to Jeroboam. And he's saying of the Lord that the Lord will take thee and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desireth. And shalt be king over Israel. And it shall be... If thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and wilt walk in my ways, and do that is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, as I built for David, and will give Israel unto thee. This one who was brought in for judgment is being given the promise that if he follows in the footsteps of David, if you will, if you follow the Lord's statutes, he will be with you. But of course, as we know he sort of punts on this he disregards these words such as why in chapter 13 that prophet from judah comes into his worship services and announces more uh, sort of uh, very uh, sort of ominous words uh, for jeroboam and how his kingdom is to be turned to ash And again, rather than acquiesce to any of these words, rather than submit himself to God's words and God's ways, what does he do? At the end of chapter 13, look at what it says. Chapter 13, verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way. Despite all these warnings, despite all the words that have come to him from various sources, he is still plunging stubbornly, headlong, into his own evil devices and desires. Which is what brings us to chapter 14. Which the historian here just basically relays the very dreadful, sad conclusion to Jeroboam's sad life. in which I think also we have, in the midst of this passage which details this demise of King Jeroboam, I think we have three lessons this morning that show us the reason for all this. Because you want to know the fundamental reason why Jeroboam was brought to this dreadful end? is because he had rejected the word of the Lord. He had rejected God's Word And so this morning, I think what is heightened out of this text is our approach to listening and hearing and obeying the Lord's words for us. That's what I want to focus on this morning through three quick lessons this morning. Hey, Micah, can you switch the slide? No, I got it. There we go. Here's lesson number one. Just to keep you on track. First of all, as we notice in verses one through four. We have here, I have described it, a lesson about bribery. A lesson about bribery, because notice what goes on. Chapter 14 opens, uh, Jeroboam is in a bad spot. Some suffering has struck the royal family. His heir to the throne, Abijah, has been struck very seriously ill. As it says there, Abijah fell sick. Despite all, this to me is just fascinating in and of itself, that despite all of Jeroboam's posturing as this really religious guy, this preeminent religious ruler, this preeminent political ruler as well, even he was not immune from suffering. Even he was not insulated from life's torments. And here, something very serious is shaking up the royal house. Why? Because the heir to the throne is sick. And it's not just he has a cold, he is on his deathbed, if you will. And we know that this is true just because of, a, of Jeroboam's response. <sighs> Notice again, at that time, Abijah, verse 1, the son of Jeroboam fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray thee, and disguise thyself, that thou be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam, and get thee to Shiloh. Behold, there is Ahijah, the prophet, which told me that I should be king over this people. Now, take a step back. This is what you have to do when you're studying the scripture, right? Just really chew on these words. Because you can gloss over them and you won't get the meat of them. Because did you notice what's going on here? Jeroboam, this guy who thinks himself as so high, so mighty, has now been brought to a decision that is hugely embarrassing. Both personally and politically. He has to ask for help. This guy who has figured himself to be uh, so immune and so impervious to any sort of wisdom coming from the outside. This guy who thought that he could fabricate a religion of his own making like we saw in chapter 12. Is now here being forced to ask for help. Ask for some assistance. He's finally forced to admit that there's something for which even he is not sufficient. Get thee to Shiloh, he says. And that's even more humbling. If it weren't humbling enough for this, this guy who thinks he's the high and mighty ruler of all things, Jeroboam. What's even more humbling is the fact that he's sort of constrained to ask for the help of a, of the, of a prophet. Of a religion that he has seeked to replace. He's asking for help from Ahijah, a prophet of Jehovah, a prophet, a messenger, a preacher of the very religion that he has spent so much time and energy and resources trying to get rid of. Remember that from chapter 12 at the end, where he fabricates bowls out of gold and puts them in Bethel and Dan? He's replicating a false religion, giving his people a false hope. And here, this guy is now being forced to ask for Ahijah's help. No wonder why he has his wife do his bidding for him. He's too embarrassed, he's too shaken up by this whole situation. He can't let this hurt his ego, so he has his wife disguise herself and go in his place. What a guy. I think there's no small amount of poetic justice happening here. As this king is now being forced to go to this place that he has sought to just kind of pretend didn't exist. He can't handle this, so he... Get his wife's help. Hey, disguise yourself. Go in, in my stead. Uh, hide your, your real identity. And then notice I love also too uh, to bring up and enhance this, this image of just accident, of happenstance. Notice again verse 3. He says, don't just disguise yourself. Take with you, he says, ten loaves and cracknels or, or cakes. And a cruise of honey, a jar of honey. And go to him and he shall tell thee what shall become of the child. So essentially what he's doing, disguise yourself so no one can see that you are part of the royal family. Also, just go by the market, pick up some groceries, and just pretend like you happened into his church. It's like, let's just, let's just make it seem so just, oh, I was just passing through on the way. And can you tell me what's going on with my child who's sick? Because what prophet of Jehovah would not... Would deny a good word for a very concerned mother. He's sort of playing to Ahijah's mercy here. Just pretend you're a commoner. Just make sure no one knows that you're part of my royal house, that you're part of my royal harem, if you will, and make sure you just bring something to make it seem like you're just a common Israelite mom who wants to have a good word, a good word of blessing given to a very sick child. <laughs> And that's what his plan is. You notice how Jeroboam is trying to distance himself as much as possible from having any association with this word from Ahijah. He wants the blessings of what Ahijah can give him out of God's word. But he doesn't really want God's word itself. He wants the benefits. He wants... Just some health for his son without having any of the responsibilities of God's word come back on him. He's trying to bribe his way into good fortune. (laughs) Let's see if I can just finagle myself into the situation where I can get something for myself and make sure that my son doesn't die. So we see from this very point... And looking backwards, Jeroboam hasn't changed one single degree from the first time that we met him. He's still very adamant that life proceed on my terms. Life has to work out my way. And he's he's still very much the king of his own heart. Even after all that he's seen, all the warnings that have already come his way, Jeroboam still reigns in Jeroboam's heart. He's the king of his life. And he thinks that even now, he can manipulate some blessings out of Jehovah, as if if God's favor is an item that he can buy and sell. This is a really audacious thought. And what we're going to be seeing here is that Jehovah cannot be bribed. He cannot be bought off. God's grace and truth is not like a magic crystal ball which when accompanied by the right words will just spill out good fortune. And yet that's sort of how Jeroboam is approaching it. That's really what he wants you see. He wants something to where he can get God's help and relief, but he doesn't want God's rule over his life. He wants to distance himself from that. He wants God's comfort for his present crisis of his son's ill health, but he has zero time for God's correction. He, he desperately, God's wants God's word to be there for him when, so he can occasionally visit it when he needs it. But he does not want to live in this word, live with this word, or live under this word at all. He wants God's blessing without being a part of God's kingdom. And I know what you might be thinking, but don't think that. Don't be so quick to judge Jeroboam. Because I'll just speak for myself. I won't presume that you think this. But how often do I live like this? Do I treat God's word in this same way? As if it's only useful when it's giving me something. Some sort of blessing. Some sort of benefit. When it's giving me something out of it. When I'm, how often do I treat God's word like that? As if it's some sort of like divine piñata. And if we just shake it just right, there will be showers of blessing all over us. We cannot curry God's favor as though we're buying our favorite treat out of a vending machine. And this is exactly what Jeroboam is doing. He's going to it and hoping he can find something, some good word, some good fortune to come on him. And yet he's never once in all of his life lived according to its rules. Live according to its God. He's actually sought to replace God. At every turn. He's been his own God. So isn't it fascinating. That this scene gives us. All the evidence we would ever need to say. That mankind doesn't change. Because. He had set out to replace this God and yet his very first inclination when the chips are down, as they say, when life is giving him the worst it has to offer, where does he turn? He turns to heaven. God, I need some help. My son is sick. Yet he hasn't ever once made God a part of his life. How much is this the case today? I would say it very much is. Funeral homes and hospital rooms are still the places where God himself is seen as life's most necessary thing. When that is happening, when disaster is striking so close, too close to home, there's this innate sense to cry out for help for someone else to intervene. And when, when those situations don't go our way, who gets the blame? We blame the Heavenly Father. God, why did you let this happen? Why did you allow this person to be taken away? Why did you allow this awful diagnosis to come down on me? When perhaps, like Bowen, we ought to be reminded of the fact that we've never made God a part of our lives. As though God is predisposed to always come through for everyone all the time. You wanna You wanna hear a hard truth? That God's promises of care and comfort and relief are uniquely addressed to his children. That God's purposes work for good, as Romans 8 says, to them who are the called according to his purposes. Those who are his children, the sons and daughters of the heavenly father, the king of all kings, they know the tender loving mercy of that father. Sometimes God allows things in our lives, especially for those who do not know him. Yes, to pierce them to the core, to remind them of who is actually supreme. I'm thankful I was praying this morning I'm th- in Sunday school that I'm thankful that we have a God who hears us, and yes, He definitely hears us in crisis when those moments are happening, when life seems to be fraying. But how often do we treat God as if that's the only time we need Him? We go to Him like a fire extinguisher, use in case of emergency, as if that's the only time that we need a good word from God when there's a crisis. We can't bribe God to bless us if we've never made him a part of our lives. He won't be mocked by that. And he's not mocked by this scene here with Jeroboam's wife and his, this ruse of trying to bribe a blessing out of the prophet Ahijah for their son Abijah. <laughs> a lesson about bribery. Notice number two, a lesson about supremacy. Because Jeroboam's wife does his bidding, verse 4, and Jeroboam's wife did so. She disguises herself, gets some groceries from wives, and makes her way to Shiloh to stop at the church there. <coughs> and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were set by reason of his age. So it appears at first that the scheme is perfectly planned. She's disguising herself, so even if someone in that town would notice who she is, she would have her identity concealed. But also, it doesn't even matter because as she entertains an audience with this prophet, he's blind. He cannot see. His eyes were frozen in their sockets because of his age. Again, he's a man who could easily be fooled by such a scheme. It would appear as though Jeroboam and his wife have concocted a really good plan. And yet, what I love is that throughout all of this, the the prevailing message is, who is supreme over this moment? Not Jeroboam, God. Not his wife even. It's Jehovah. He is this one who is supreme as he always is over this situation. Because notice what he does. Even despite uh, Ahijah's age, his failing health, his seeming inability to provide any sort of wisdom to this moment, notice what happens. God gives him another word. And the Lord said unto Ahijah. I just love the fact that this aging old man is still faithful to the Lord's word. Enough to be used by him in this particular moment. Despite his age, God was going to use this vessel for his purposes And notice what he says. Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee for her son, Abijah, for he is sick. Thus and thus shalt thou say unto her, for it shall be when she cometh in that she shall feign herself to be another woman. He gives him a word. You're going to be able to pierce through this very uh, happily haphazard ploy of of Jeroboam and his wife to try and get something good out of you and really out of me is what God is saying. Whereas Jeroboam and company thought that they could fool this, this blind old prophet, there was no fooling God. There was no pulling one over on Jehovah. Because I love how it says in verse 6. And it was so. Exactly as God said it would happen. It came to be. Just as he said. And what did he say? That as soon as her feet hit the threshold of your door. You're going to know who it is. And it was so. Verse 6. And when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet. She came in at the door that he said, come in thou wife of Jeroboam. (laughs) The jig is up. The plan, it has been totally demolished. The scheme, the ruse that they had planned is is falling apart right in front of them. I get the picture that her foot is like hovering over the threshold. And he announces from a dark room, come in thou wife of Jeroboam. And behind this veil, Jeroboam's wife is just stunned into silence. (laughs) They had planned. You're, you're blind. How can you see? How can you know? God is supreme over the situation. And what does he do? He welcomes her, and then he says, I got some bad news. I have, as he says, I'm sent to thee with heavy tidings. Opposite of gospel. Opposite of good news. And what does he announce? The devastation of Jeroboam's house. And the destruction of his entire kingly line. Let me read it again in full down through verse 16. Listen to these harsh words. Remember, by the way, side note. Remember back in chapter 12. When he was making those golden calves in Bethel and Dan. And It's interesting to me how some commentators said that this was actually a good thing. How it actually allowed for some liturgy to come back into the house of God. And they were it, there's a lot of theological and hermeneutical hoops that they jumped through to get to that point. But to me, if you want any referendum on the fact that what Jeroboam did was evil, you all you have to do is come to this passage. If you want to know what God thinks about it... <laughs> Verse 9 is a very particularly strong verse, or in verse 10, but you don't have to search very far. He knew what he was doing. Jeroboam was replacing God, and God didn't take to that too kindly. Look at verse 7. Go, tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord God of Israel... For as much as I exalted thee from among the people, and made thee prince over my people Israel, and rent the kingdom away from the house of David, and gave it thee, gave it to you, and thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart, to do that only which was right in mine eyes. So instead of all that, I gave you this. I had this kingdom given to you on a silver platter, so to speak. I I set it up perfectly where you could tee off and be a king of Israel with everything going for you. And yet you have not been living according to my ways, according to my words. And instead, how have you been living? Thou hast done evil above all that were before thee. For thou hast gone and made thee other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and hast cast me behind thy back. You want to know why the very first commandment is having no other gods before God? Because that's the most serious thing in all of life. It's the sin of sins that we have made ourselves into gods. Again, this is... Sidebar, Genesis 3, the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden was to what? That they could be like God. That they would have the wisdom of all knowledge and all life and all truth. And that they could be in that moment like God himself. Every sin at its core has that nestling inside it, infecting it. Is that we believe we can be our own gods. And here Jeroboam has allowed that to materialize into the actual fabrication of other gods. And essentially what does God say? You have made for yourself other gods. And it's akin to throwing me behind your back. Such disgrace is on display from Jeroboam. Such disdain for Jehovah and his word. Even after he's blessed you and offered to bless you if you just follow me. You've provoked me to anger. Therefore, verse 10, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it all be gone. God doesn't think very highly of what Jeroboam did. (laughs) And him that dieth of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat. in him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. For the Lord hath spoken it. Arise thou therefore, get thee to thine own house. And when thy feet enter to the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found some good thing toward the Lord or God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover... The Lord shall raise him up a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam that day. But what even now? For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. And he shall root up Israel out of the good land which he gave to their fathers. And shall scatter them beyond the river because they have made their groves provoking the Lord to anger. And he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. Wow. God doesn't think or hold very kindly to someone thinking that they are more supreme than God. He doesn't think that these uh, movements were of any profit. Actually he calls them they're just dung. And your whole kingdom is going to be taken away as human waste. (laughs) And Notice. Verses aids and again verse 14. that, That rending away of the kingdom. That cutting off of Jeroboam's line. Is exactly the same judgment that was going to come down to Solomon. He's just repeated Solomon's errors. He despised God's grace. And he punted on the Davidic blessings. And therefore he is now going to experience all of the horrendous consequences. For such rank unfaithfulness. Even his whole family. Again. Verse 11. Him that dies of Jeroboam. All of Jeroboam's line. They're not going to come to a graceful, peaceful end. All of them. They're going to die in the fields or in the cities. And vermin are going to eat at their carcasses. Not a pretty sight. His family is going to be akin to roadkill. God... Is offended by Jeroboam's actions. Why? Because he thought that he could be better than God. And he didn't need to listen to God's words. And he thought he was supreme. And yet through it all God is going to give a very strong stark reminder. I am always supreme over all things. But most especially over my word. He is always supreme. And no matter how well we disguise ourselves, God's word will always find us out. It's in the Proverbs. It's in Numbers. It's the truth of this exact moment. That God's word, his truth, is an unmasking agent. It's a sword, as it says in Hebrews 4, that that cuts through all of our best laid plans and all of our finest motives. And it exposes that just what's inside of us is nothing but desperation. We are desperate sinners longing for some sense of peace and settlement and satisfaction. Yet you know, all of the veneers that we put up and all the pretenses that we disguise ourselves with, there is nothing through which God's word cannot see. It saw through that flimsy veil that Jeroboam's wife wore, and it can see through your veil of righteousness this morning. All the things that, you're, uh, that you think that you've disguised, that you think that God cannot see, he sees through it all. All the things you're running from, all the things that you're trying to forget, and your things that you're trying to hide from, the things that you're trying to pretend didn't happen. His word sees through all that, and he's exposing it with his word, so that you see that you are desperate. And that's actually good news because this is the God of the desperate. The God who reigns supreme over his word is the God who meets desperate people. And reminds them and says to them, as he says in Matthew, come to me, all you who are weary, and be reminded that I'm supreme. You can find rest for your weary bones precisely because I'm the one that ends all of your scheming, all of your hiding, all of your running. I can see through all your mask wearing and you don't have to wear that anymore. Come to me and find rest. This is the promise of the supreme one. All the disguises, they can fall to the ground because this invitation still prevails. He's a God who is supreme over all of that and more. But I must hasten to the last lesson this morning a lesson about bribery, a lesson about supremacy, and lastly, a lesson about legacy because here is where I think this is the key point of this passage. The legacy of Jeroboam, as we've already hinted at, is one that ought to make the little hairs on the back of our necks stand to attention. He had received this word that he was about to inherit a portion of the kingdom all the way back in chapter 11. And he was given the assurance that if you just walk with God, all the blessings that I gave to David, they'll be true for you. Which is quite a statement. But it did not take long for Jeroboam to think that that's, that's malarkey. I don't need that. And he forges his own way. And, his, and what he ends up forging is nothing but a legacy of disgrace and dishonor and shame. As we've already seen in verse 16. He shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. And notice that everything comes about exactly as God said. He's supreme over this moment. And Jeroboam's wife, verse 17, arose and departed and came to Terzah. And when she came to the threshold of the door, the child died. And they buried him. And all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which spake by the hand of his servant Ahijah the prophet. The wife goes back. Goes back to their home, Abijah dies, Israel mourns. And then what I find so fascinating is actually verses 19 and 20. Because the historian chooses to summarize all the remaining years of Jeroboam's rule in two verses. And the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the days which Jeroboam reigned were two and twenty years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his stead. He is basically saying there's nothing more you need to know. He fought some battles, he did some stuff, and you could read about them. And actually, what's fascinating is that the book that he's talking about is not the book of Chronicles that we have here, it's a book that no longer exists in our world today. It's been lost to time. All of those amazing and incredible feats that perhaps Jeroboam had in the world of military, in the world of politics, in the world of society. All those exploits are lost to history. Because they weren't what matters. What matters is who you worship. And for Jeroboam, that was himself. Because again, what is he remembered for? How about that legacy, verse 9? He is remembered for being a king who does evil above all that were before him. And in fact, this is a moment in which all the kings after him will be likened to Jeroboam. Just how you have these two competing standards. David is the standard of kings for those who follow God and seek his will and have kingships of faith. And Jeroboam is held up as the standard of all that is opposite of that. Because actually if you trace that phrase in verse 9 and then in verse 16, making Israel to sin, it's repeated for the next 180 years to describe kings that follow, that don't follow God. And in fact, when, when, um, when Josiah is coming about in 2 Kings chapter 17 and bringing all of that reform, it is said to overthrow the ways of Jeroboam, <laughs> His disgrace lingered for decades, for centuries. It's a legacy that I don't think any of us want to be remembered for. But I think what is most fascinating is that his legacy is contrasted with his son who does literally nothing in this text. Did you notice Abijah... He's sick. Verse 1. He's fallen ill. What is Abijah remembered for? Verse 13. And all of Israel shall mourn for him. For who? For Abijah. They're going to mourn for him when he dies because he is going to die. And they will bury him. Again, notice the contrast. Unlike any else, any of the other members of Jeroboam's family, who are all going to be eaten by dogs or 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 birds, vultures, this son is going to be buried for he only of Jeroboam. Jeroboam's only son shall come to the grave. Why? Because in him there is found some good thing toward the Lord God of Israel. How fascinating. That Abijah is this lone figure in a family of wretchedness who listened to the Lord. He's not a child. He's a, perhaps a younger teen at this point, Abijah is. That idea that, that God saw some good thing, it comes actually, I think, from his name. You know what Abijah means? Yahweh is my father. It matters very little what you accomplish in the eyes of the world. It matters infinitely more what you do in the eyes of God. That is faith. And here the word is bringing us to that point. What sort of place does the Bible hold in your life? Do you treat it like Jeroboam does? That you only resort to it when you are in a crisis. It's only occasionally visited. That when something bad is happening, you have to actually brush some dust off before you open it. Or do you seek to live in it? That you live in it as though it's your chief delight and your stronghold and your lifeline. This, my friends, is the best legacy that we could ever leave. That we know that there's one who is supreme over us. And even better than that, He has invited us into relationship with him. The one who knows the ends from the beginnings. The supreme one over all things has come down to be our father. Can you think of what's better than that? The God over all things visits us. Again, Psalm 8. I've referenced it in Sunday school, but it's just so present on my mind. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? Who are we that the supreme God of all things would invite himself into our world, into our domain, take up a body just like ours, and die a death that we deserve to die? Who are we? This is what this word invites you to see. That you are not supreme over any moment of your life. But actually, that's really good news because there's one who is so much more powerful who is holding every single moment together. He's holding everything by the grip of his sovereign hands. He is the one who's supreme over every moment. Where does this Bible hold a place in your life? For me, for myself. I want to live in this word, that its words may be the first that spill off my mouth. What sort of place does it hold in your life? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. At this time...